Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. What makes President Joe Biden? We're all pretty familiar with Vice President Biden and Senator Biden. But in his latest iteration as Commander-in-Chief, it hasn't been as easy to see inside his mind. Cracking into Biden's brain and inside his White House has been a challenge for the media. He's surrounded by a tight clan of family and advisors who have all achieved Biden lifer status. And they don't often leak. His sister Valerie and the five advisors known as the Quint, Steve Reschetti, Mike Donilon, Anita Dunn, Bruce Reed, and now former chief of staff Ron Klain. It's been a notoriously tough circle to penetrate. But now one person has done it. Franklin Four, who spent the last few years inside the heads of Biden and his team, has written the definitive account of President Biden's first two years in office. And what he learned just might surprise you. I'm Ryan Lizza, and this is Playbook Deep Dive. Frank's book is The Last Politician, Inside Joe Biden's White House and the Struggle for America's Future. Frank didn't set out to write about the first two years. The book was originally supposed to be about the first 100 days. But the story was too interesting to stop. Next, he planned to wrap up after the passage of Build Back Better. Then, well, that didn't happen. So the book grew into a two-year project that ends tidily with the midterms. The book has a lot of news in it, and we're going to cover much of it today. But for me, the book really shines when it grapples with the core of who Biden is both psychologically and ideologically. And whether you love Biden or hate him, Frank's book just might change your mind about how you understand him. I should note that Frank is an old and dear friend and my former editor, and we've had many conversations about the substance of this book over the last few years. So it was delightful to read the finished product and to have him over to my place last week to sit around in my kitchen and record this fascinating conversation. Let's start with a little bit more about your understanding of Biden. The book is called The Last Politician. You talk about in the acknowledgments, you were influenced by Richard Ben Kramer's What It Takes. Give us a little bit about big picture, what uh, we get wrong about Biden, and a little bit about the, the, the Biden psychology. Right. Well, so like every political journalist of a certain age, I revere Richard Ben Kramer's What It Takes, precisely because it trades in that type of psychology that I find so interesting. And I read it when I was I was a young journalist and I put it aside and I just, you know, when when my publisher came to me and started to talk about the prospect of doing a Biden book, I went back and I reread Richard Ben Kramer and I started to think, well, he's a lot older and he's obviously changed over the years, but there's a limit to how much we change as human beings. And so the guy that Richard Ben Kramer depicts, who's status anxious, who has these chips on his shoulder, who's always kind of throttling people to try to make them love him, um, that guy never went away. He maybe matured and maybe mellowed. And once you become president of the United States, this thing that Joe Biden had sought so many times for so long, and it was a dream that he gave up on and then re-embraced, you, you, you don't change. Um, and so th- that's what made me interested in him as, as a figure, was that there was this element of class resentment, the sense of not of being part of Washington, but never really truly belonging to Washington, of craving the approval of the Council of, on Foreign Relations and the New Republic and all these places, but also um, kind of sneering about them behind their back, about their laziness, their elite thinking, um, the sense that if he ever could get in there and roll up his sleeves, he'd do it differently and he would do it better. That's That's an interesting guy. And because he's so much a part of the furniture of Washington. Everybody thinks that they know him, um, but they're kind of stuck at this very superficial level of understanding of the man, that he's the guy with the folksy 
anecdotes that um, that he's the guy who you can never get off the phone. But but he's more than that. That that can be a pretty powerful fuel, though, can it? Totally. You need powerful fuel if you're 80 years old and you're considering running. You're running for re-election as president of the United States. You know, it's interesting to run the counterfactual. What if he had decided to pack it in after one term? He would be Cincinnatus. He would be this figure that uh, people might have lauded for um, putting country above career. Yeah. But he didn't do that. Um, he has a sense, I think, that he's an indispensable figure in American political history. And I think everything in his obituary then turns on whether he's got that right or not. He has to beat Trump in 2024 in order to prove out his theory of self. Do you think he, he ever seriously considered not standing for re-election? Or another way to ask it is, what would the circumstances have had to have been for him to seriously consider that? You know, if Trump had decided not to run in 2024, I think that that probably would have affected his calculus on some level. Yeah. I think if Jill Biden had told him not to do it, that would have affected his calculus. But as soon as Trump made it clear that he was back in, I think that it made the decision much easier for Biden. Like the, the mission's not finished. Yeah. But I, you know, you, when you talk to people around Joe Biden, in, before he formally announced his decision, they would always pause, and it wasn't—it wasn't a bullshit pause. It really—it really made it seem like that there was some chance that they held that he wouldn't—he wouldn't go ahead. Yeah. Um, and I think, like many decisions like this, he doesn't. One of the things that I think is interesting about him is how small, in the end, his circle is. Um, that part of that career in Washington means that. Um, he doesn't go around calling a bunch of randos and discoursing late at night like Bill Clinton did. Your point about the small circle is a good segue into what was going to be my next question. And I just want you to sort of explain the circle. This is a circle of powerful people in the White House that is the most anonymous of any modern White House. I think a lot of people could not pick uh, Mike Donilon out of a lineup and, you know, saying even more so uh, for Steve Rochetti. Tell us about the quintet and with, with a little bit of emphasis on how they are different from one another. Okay. Well, I think just by way of background, one fundamental fact about Joe Biden is that he's an Irish American politician who grew up in the 1960s and for whom family is the atomic unit of politics. And so if you were to kind of broaden out his inner circle, you'd have his sister, Valerie, there. You have Ted Kaufman, who was his chief of staff for decades. And so you have almost this um, clan-like, if I was an anthropologist and I was describing the quintet or the circles around Joe Biden, I would say it's, it's, it's not tribal, it's clan-like. And so you have somebody like Ron Klain, who began working for Joe Biden in 1988 when he was in his 20s. And you have somebody like Mike Donilon, uh, who is was his political consultant and does a lot of his speech writing, who still goes back that long as well. Bruce Reed, who is another member of the, his inner circle, they are so deeply intertwined with one another. And you would think that over that period of time, they've worked through whatever rivalries that they have with one another. They understand the dynamic with uh, Joe Biden. And as a result, Biden has this small group that he feels comfortable having very difficult conversations with. He knows that nobody's going to leave the room and rush to Ryan Lizza at Politico. And that gives him a measure of um, confidence. And I think, again, this is a self-protective thing for Joe Biden, because sometimes when he works through a policy idea, he might say something that uh, he would never say in public, or um, he needs to verbalize in order to um, to process. He's he's not somebody who sits around. It's not. It's very different than Obama. Obama could retreat to his library with his briefing book and work things out for himself. Biden does his share of homework when he goes home at night. He takes home a thick book and he reads. 
But I think in order to arrive at a conclusion, he needs to have conversation. It needs a safe space. It needs he to be able to say things space. that are politically incorrect with those staff. Did you ever get a sense that the circle is so tight that it's blind to outside influences and, um, you know, blinkered in that way? I think it is. I think when it comes to politics, especially, I do have the sense that they're able to disconnect from the approval rating problem a little bit too easily. Mm. They have their own sense of how they can fix their political problems. And I think that they probably would benefit from a wider uh, circle of um, interlocutors. And yet they've been remarkably stable. Yeah. From campaign through governing. I mean, Ron Klain, with the exception and Anita going in But there, and out. there are people. Uh, so you take somebody like uh, Brian Deese. So, so to, to be in the sweet spot in the Biden White House, um, you have to be both uh, a hack and a wonk. But so the idea is that in Washington, you have some people who are attracted to the city because of the policy and they don't understand the politics. And then you have hacks who are attracted to the politics and indifferent to the policy. But I think to be successful, you have to be so like somebody like Bruce Reed or Ron Klain or Anita Dunn, I think are both are adept at both of those things. And they think politically about policy. And this is a, a Biden maxim going back to um, I mean, going back probably forever. But it made him a little bit of a dissident in the Obama White House. So when the Obama stimulus was passed, there were all these tax credits that were submerged. They were a hidden form of government that tried to induce virtuous behavior. And yet they weren't advertised as in political campaign ads or touted on the front page of the New York Times. And to Biden, that was kind of utter bullshit. Like good policy is good politics. If you're going to have policy that sticks and isn't overturned immediately, it needs to obtain a broad constituency. Mm. If you do bad policy, it's just going to blow up in your face and it won't ultimately be very good politics. And I think one of the interesting things about his presidency is I don't think that he's really lived up to that maxim. I think that he's, if I were to- if Selling? If I were to judge him, yeah, I would say he's good at governing. Yeah. He's, he's maybe, he's maybe um, one of the better presidents at governing in my lifetime. But when it comes to messaging and communicating his accomplishments to the public, he's palpably weak. This is sort of the opposite of his uh, of, of his the rap against him back in the day. Right, that he's kind of vacuous. There's not there's not a lot there, but expertise in government has been what you discovered was the most admirable trait, but not so good at the PR game. Yeah, and I think he trips himself up at um, but with the weeds. So, for instance, if he's preparing for a press conference or preparing for an interview. He's, he's mortally afraid of being perceived as stupid or being fed lines by staffers. That's what got him into trouble in the 80s with, you know, the allegation that he plagiarized the speech. And so in order to prove to the world his, that he's not stupid, he'll just ask about everything. And so there's a tax credit. Well, let's bring in the wonks because I don't really understand this. And then the wonks will come in and, and like suddenly he's trapped in the minutiae of policy and to some extent, that's admirable. But on the other hand, it kind of uh, draws him away sometimes from the big picture thing. Yeah, he can do it to a fault. Yeah. Bruce Reed, known, of course, for, for running the DLC, so sort of will always be identified as the centrist in the group. But as you point out, he's moved along with the Democratic Party. The one that surprises a lot of people is Klain. Klain really became the progressives' go-to person in the White House, and it seems like during the Trump era, he was maybe um, maybe radicalized is, is too strong. But he he became a much more committed progressive, at least in my understanding of yeah. what he was like before and after. Donilon, less ideological, but much you know a, a pure message guy, and then Anita. I find at least really channeling that Biden skepticism of politically stupid left-wing policies every once in a while. But anyway, I wonder if you could just tease some of that stuff out for us. Yeah, starting with Mike Donilon, because he's in some ways the easiest to understand. He's an introvert. He's somebody who's been around Biden so long. He's got no 
no real ego, which is part of the reason why people don't know that much about him, which makes him a very good observer. And so one of the things that I found kind of incredible is so for Biden's first inaugural, Donald writes the draft of it. He doesn't even need to talk to Biden to begin writing the first draft. It can just come to him because he knows his mind so well. And it makes him a very effective operator on the inside because if you do need to change Biden's mind on something, Donalyn, you know, because he thinks so similarly to Biden, is able to he talk. Can challenge. So if I would, if you if you're a senator and you want to change his mind, maybe going to Donalyn first is a way to test. But nobody things. would nobody would do that because that's just not the way that he operates in the world. And so then you have somebody like Bruce Reed who. Let's just say you have multiple former chiefs of staff coexisting. So both Bruce Reed, Steve Reschetti, and Ron Klain at various moments had served as Joe Biden's chief of staff. And you think, again, that would be something where they rub each other the wrong way, and all of them would want to be top dog. And I think Reschetti probably wanted to be the chief of staff as well as as Klain, um, but it was just not in the cards for him. So why is Ron Klain perceived as being somebody who's a progressive ally? I think to understand that, you have to understand that we're in the middle of kind of a generational shift within the Democratic Party, that uh, if you went back 25 years, you'd have people like Larry Summers um, as and Robert Rubin as the North Stars of Democratic political economy. Yeah. And the idea of having a confrontational relationship with the left was something that proved your worth both as a thinker and also proved a level of intellectual honesty because you were able to be hard-hearted about some policies that would have required compassion in the past. You had to break with some of the orthodoxies of previous ages. And for younger Democrats, I think they came out of the Obama administration with a sense that they had somehow been complicit in the rise of Trump by their inability to effectively deal with the financial crisis of uh, 2008, and that they never really challenged the rising tides of uh, inequality. And so somebody like Klain, who I think does have uh, a wonkish relationship with the democratic economic, democratic economic circles, who is a savvy political player, could see the influence of Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, yeah. I think self-consciously cultivated relationships with that wing of the party. Yeah. And I think as a matter of empiricism, probably was drawn in their direction because he was seeing a lot of the same things that some of the younger wonks were seeing about the failures of the last generations of Democratic presidents to deal with the hard economic realities of American life. One of the things that comes up in every early history of a, of a White House is the legislative strategy decisions that are made during the transition and the first few months are like destiny. Yes. <laughs> With Obama, who knows what would have happened if um, he had tackled climate change before health care. Um, yeah. Bill Clinton, you, you, know, you can make uh, similar arguments. The sequence is, is, is really important. Biden was going to deal with the pandemic first, no matter what. But he's got this big legislative agenda, a lot of excitement from progressives and been pushing it to the to the max. How did they decide on the initial legislative strategy? So we need to go back to December 2020. They've just uh, had the AP you know, declare the election. They're formulating their agenda. In January 5th, there's this special election that's being held in Georgia that's going to determine the fate of the Senate. So in December, they don't know if they're going to have control over both branches of Congress, but they still have to make these important decisions about how to sequence things. The aides have their own view. And so the aides come to Biden and they say, look, you're going to have to just take advantage of the fact that you have this honeymoon period and you have this, this, this pandemic, this economic crisis, jam your entire domestic agenda into one piece of legislation and um, there were compelling reasons to do this. Uh, so if he had just passed a pure stimulus measure, the theory would go, well, that's not enough to win you re-election. That's not enough to win midterm elections. They, I think uh, that was basically right. <laughs> yeah. But so Ron Klain was like, OK, let's jam in some of the climate spending. Let's. And this was everybody. 
everybody in the administration. Let's put climate spending in here. Let's do some daycare, uh, some childcare spending in here. In the pandemic stimulus bill. In the pandemic stimulus bill. Like, you know, hopefully we'll be able to get the centrist in the Senate to go along with this. Yeah. And Biden was like, no, 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 this is not the right call. If I put everything in here, I'm going to be dead on arrival. We need to break this into component parts. The first thing we do is we have to give people money so that they can survive the pandemic. We need to fully fund the vaccination program. And then if we do that, then we do, um, then we do the rebuilding bit of it. And um, I think really that was going to be probably just largely infrastructure with some uh, bouquets thrown in there for progressives to get them to go along with it. But that was probably the entirety of the agenda that was imaginable before the Georgia runoffs. Let's go over some of the big moments in the in the first two years in terms of the legislative agenda. Let's uh, cut to the long slog of the infrastructure bill and yes. what eventually Joe Manchin renames the Inflation Reduction Act. So uh, let's just do this section with with your analysis of these two uh, senators, Kirsten Sinema and, and, and Joe Manchin. And I mean, so much of the book is about Biden's skills as a politician and the way he builds relationships. You have a great ex- example, as he said when he, uh, I think, gave his goodbye speech in the Senate, you know, he'll always be a Senate man. Yes. And so he's a good legisla- legislative strategist. He knew he wasn't going to get Murkowski's vote for something early on, and yet he still threw in some uh, goodies for Alaska into Gave the bill. Gave her some sugar. Gave her some sugar, even though she wasn't going to vote for it, because he, and he, you know, he told his staff, don't worry, she, you know, she'll, she'll remember. Yeah. Um, which I think worked out. I think Murkowski yeah. became an ally. Yeah. Um, and so there's a lot of good anecdotes about those little moves that, that, that uh, Biden has. Uh, tell us about how he dealt with, was frustrated by um, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. Well, was so frustrating. He did a lot better with one than the other. <laughs> well, and interestingly, I think that they felt like they were going to do better with Manchin than with Cinema. That they felt like um, Manchin would would play ball. That he kept talking to them. He would always say, "Mr. President, we're going to get this done. Don't worry, we're going to get to yes." And so they would read all these things that he would say in the press or in the Wall Street Journal op-ed page, and they think, "All right." That's just noise. He's being so sincere when he's sitting with us face to face. And in the end, there's this moment. Joe Biden loves his real estate. And he hasn't, he uses the Oval Office as a political prop, but he doesn't use his home in Delaware as a political prop. With one exception, he invited Manchin over to his house. And he gave him- Getting that invitation is like, that's the highest thing you can do. It's not Camp David. It's not the Oval Office. No. It's it's the home in Delaware. Yeah, and he gave Mansion like the the tour that he'd been saving up for like for years. It was just like he was just swelling with pride as he took him around his place. How how late in the process was it? That this was, was like, in October, late October. So right. this is late in the process. But in the end, as they were leaving, they shook hands, and Mansion said, "Again, we'll get this done." And for for Biden, that was like the thing that he could bank on because he was like, nobody's going to come to my house and shake my hand and tell me we're going to get this done and renege on that promise. And yeah, that was right before it all blew up. That was that was a couple months, a, a month and a half before it blew up. It blew up in December. And so, but cinema was so difficult because cinema would come into the Oval Office and she would be obstreperous. She threatened to leave in the middle of one meeting. And so Biden felt like she was the difficult one because she wouldn't return the White House's calls at various moments. And part of the problem was- They had as much trouble understanding her as everyone else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there was this relationship between Cinema and Manchin where they were rivals. Each of them wanted to be the 50th senator and right. the decisive vote. And they didn't agree on certain things because Manchin comes from West Virginia. He has- at least an element of populism to him. He's happy to stick it to to Wall Street. He wanted to end the carried interest loophole. Um, He was happy to raise taxes on the rich, but he didn't want to end fossil fuels. Cinema, on the other hand, cares about climate change, but she's she's happy to carry, she seems sincere in her desire for, for whatever reason to carry 
Wall Street's uh, water on these issues. Yeah. And so that meant every time they tried to please Manchin, they would piss off cinema. Every time they would try to please cinema, they would end up pissing off Manchin. And it became this- uh, So this, this Manchinima idea is wrong because they just weren't the same person. The only thing that they had in common was that they were the ho- they were holdouts. Yeah, exactly. You tugged, on, you tugged on one and it lost you the other. Exactly, exactly. Uh, Joe Manchin eventually came to not be very fond of Ron Klain. Yeah. And um, he had a nickname for Klain. Well, Ron fucking Klain. <laughs> <laughs> how, how fraught was that relationship? It was so fraught. I yeah. mean, I think it was, it was almost weird how much he personalized his animus towards Ron Klain. It was like he decided that Klain was this disingenuous uh, schemer who was whispering in, in Biden's ear, taking Biden in a really far left direction. He kind of adopted the, you know, the kind of the rights view of Klain, Prime Minister Klain and all yeah. the rest. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That he was, he was. I think it was a way of deflecting because Manchin always maintained close relationship with Steve Rachetti. They were, they would, it was this weird thing where he would talk to Rachetti as if Rachetti wasn't actually in the administration. Huh. And so he would, he would back channel. Similar it. backgrounds, kind of like, uh, yeah. you know, Italian ancestry, you know, West Virginia and Ohio, you know, so like these kind of working class uh, ethnic guys in that section of the country. Yeah, exactly. But on the other hand, and, and, and I think he genuinely likes Biden. But he doesn't want to personally blame Biden for things. And so yeah. it just made sense to- He had to have a lightning rod. Yeah, he needed a scapegoat. Yeah. Okay. And so can I just tell one story, which I am especially fond of? Which yeah, go, is, of course. So in December, Manchin goes on Fox News, says there's no way that he can vote for Build Back Better. And then the months pass and um, Manchin has Gina Raimondo, the Commerce Secretary, over to his houseboat to watch the Super Bowl. And she starts working him over. She's like, got to get back to the table. And she basically says, I need you to come to my house. I'm cooking you dinner and Ron Klain's going to be there and we're going to work this out. And Manchin, I think, was kind of put on the spot. He didn't say yes in the moment, but he eventually said yes. And so he goes over to Raimondo's house and she spends all day cooking, um, uh, cooking roasted pork, cooking, like making cannolis. It's like it's like a full on Italian assault on Joe Manchin, who's also Italian, and, and they'd bonded over their shared um, heritage at one point. And Egg, so- Eggplant parm was on the menu, parm, I believe, yeah, if I'm yeah. remembering correctly. Yeah, exactly. Okay. That's, uh, that's the type of that's royal the kind, precision that we expect out of this Well, podcast. that's just the kind no. of thing that I personally would remember. <laughs> so so he comes he comes over, and he and Klain basically arrive at basically the same moment, and they have this extremely awkward encounter in the house. Uh, but Raimondo's 15-year-old son rushes in because he's just gone out to buy Manchin's favorite scotch, which was with um, with with uh, Raimondo's husband. And the 15-year-old presents Manchin with a bottle of scotch. And Manchin just loves the moment and starts laughing. And it kind of breaks the ice. And they sit down at the table. And Raimondo tells them, like, look, we got to bury the hatchet here. And basically turns to Ron and kind of is like, Ron, it's your turn. And so Ron has to eat a lot of shit and has to apologize to, to Manchin at this dinner for all of the perceived slights. And Manchin very graciously accepts the apology and then and says that they're going to be able to work this out. But he also says, like, you know, what I want is never going to be agreeable to you. And Klain has no choice but to say, you know, test us. We talked about the stimulus bill and... The pandemic policies still are affecting our politics. Massive backlash against lockdowns, masking, vaccine skepticism, you know. And of course, when a democratic administration does something, the backlash is usually a little bit uh, harsher, right? Um, Because a conservative administration that uses the state to coerce behavior, a lot of uh, conservatives will tolerate that. But when it's a Democrat, usually you have a much more severe backlash. We saw this with Carter, with Clinton, with Obama, and we saw it with with Biden and the pandemic. Some of the same policies that Trump pursued when Biden pursued them, it was more toxic. At the same time, they were trying to deal with this problem you write about in how do you get the Trump voters to take the vaccine, to care more about COVID? And... Um, 
they they turn to a name that will be very familiar uh, to our listeners. So that, that's a, a lot to unpack, but I yeah, want so, you to just so talk about that. Early on, Biden was acutely aware of the problem of backlash, and he was desperate to avoid it. And so he had two strategies there. One was he wasn't going to overpromise about when we would return to normal, which meant that sometimes he would give these straining, implausibly pessimistic accounts of when we would be able to gather for for holiday celebrations and the like. And then the other part of it was that he didn't want to demonize the um, the unvaccinated. One of his core beliefs is persuasion. And one of the tests of politics is the ability to get people to do the right thing. And um, he was determined to avoid the culture war. So initially, he didn't want to impose any vaccine passports or any vaccine mandates. He resisted those policies when they were suggested. And they actually ended up reaching out. Andy Slavitt, who was working for Jeff Zients, the then COVID czar, reached out to Frank Lentz, the, the famous Republican pollster, and brought him in to help understand how to talk to the unvaccinated. And um, one of the things that they'd been considering, um, you know, however abstractly, a lot of people were talking about it, was how do you enlist Trump to talk to them? And Luntz was like, no, 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 that's totally condescending. So Biden, for a, se- for a second, considered the possibility of recruiting? I don't think he ever seriously considered yeah. it. I think he was willing to chew it over, but yeah. he never got remotely close to deciding that. But it was yeah. something that was that was raised. It was certainly something that was in the ether yeah. at the time. And I think Luntz helped supply them with some research, which they then took to some of the TV networks and said, look, the more you antagonize the unvaccinated, the more you stigmatize them, the less likely they are to get the shot. Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. While we're on the subject of sort of backlash policies, there are two big ones you write about that I think are both newsworthy and very interesting. Um, One is immigration. And then the second one is um, voting rights. Yeah. We're going to jump around a lot now because there's a lot to cover. But I want you to just unpack the the debates over those two fraught issues. I think this is very telling, to me at least, about Biden and, and his team. So Biden is so much more centrist on immigration than I think the party. Uh, it, it's an issue that frustrates him and he doesn't especially enjoy discussing or debating and that's kind of his tell. Like he knows it keeps getting reimposed on him and he's willing to go deep into the details about it, but he gets pretty grumpy when he's forced to talk about immigration. Interesting. I think that he's convinced that if he goes too far, then he's going to piss off a lot of Rust Belt voters and Democrats are going to lose. And so he he has a very sharp sense, maybe a sharper sense than anybody in his party of the political perils of the immigration issue. And he's determined to try to navigate it. And the issue itself is determined to continually sink him because it's just, it's in some level an unsolvable issue. Similarly, you have a fascinating account about the behind the scenes drama over voting rights. Um, Just unpack that uh, for us. So there actually wasn't that much drama around voting rights. So you had savvy people like Anita Dunn and maybe many others in the White House who understood that they were never going to be able to pass the maximalist version of voting rights that progressives wanted. Um, And they felt as if the immediate threat to the country was Trump and state legislatures meddling in elections that they needed to reform the Electoral Counts Act. And so that was their preferred solution. But Biden, along with Susan Rice, who was the domestic policy council head, along with the vice president, along with Nancy Pelosi, along with Chuck Schumer, all wanted the maximalist progressive bill to be the focus. But in order to get that maximalist bill, they needed to persuade both Cinema and Manchin to do away with the filibuster. 
And so it was a fool's errand. Anybody could look at this issue and say that was never going to happen. But they advocated getting rid of the filibuster yes. for this issue. And Biden made some of his most strident comments of his entire presidency on this, this issue. Jim Crow 2.0, comparing yes. Republicans arguably to, to Bull Connor and all, all the rest. And But you, you report behind the scenes – Anita Dunn is basically like, I'm exaggerating here. This is a bullshit issue. <laughs> you know, this is not Jim Crow 2.0. She wasn't actually in the White House at this phase. She left the White House in August. So as an outside advisor, that was her opinion. Got it. Saying that the Democratic leadership in Congress, their commitment to this was, yeah. or their their concern about this was exaggerated. Yeah. Right. And so why does the question is, why does Biden go all in with his rhetoric when right. he knows that there's so little hope psychologically? I think that in Biden's um, self-myth, the reason he got into politics is civil rights. And so he thinks of himself as an activist, which is ironic given the attacks that Kamala Harris launched on him during the, the last primary and some of his voting record along the way. But I think he considers himself a civil rights champion. And I think he felt... Um, some internal psychic moral pressure to be outspoken on the issue. I think Afghanistan is not the low point of his administration. The collapse of Build Back Better wasn't the low point of his administration. The low point of his administration is he goes to the South, he gives these civil rights speeches, compares Joe Manchin to Bull Connor, realizes it compares Mitch McConnell to Bull Connor, realizes yeah, he's realizes that he's overshot. And then goes to Mitch McConnell's office and tries to get an apology for him because he's in the he's in the Capitol already to address address the Senate Democrats. Goes to McConnell's door. McConnell isn't there, and so it's really kind of the most the most pathetic low moment of his presidency. I've forgotten about that. He realized he was wrong and he'd gone too far and tried to apologize. Yeah, that sort of you know it reminds me. It's, it's sort of the low point of like the you know Prime Minister Biden that they try and pull him out of after the legislative agenda is is so rocky and he's gone up to the hill twice and yeah. you know doesn't doesn't get the votes. Yeah, but the the president going and knocking on the door of the minority not, leader. Not a great moment. <laughs> I found your discussion and your description of Biden's relationship with the issue of abortion and his instincts about uh, and his response to the Dobbs decision uh, fascinating. So tell us about that. So the thing to remember about Joe Biden is that his Catholicism is sincere, but he's also kind of awkwardly placed within Catholicism. When he grew up in Scranton, um, he had this genuine abiding affection for nuns. And since he's a nostalgic guy, I think the church to him is about his place in the world. It's about home. And when the abortion issue comes up, he becomes different. He's socially liberal on gay issues, on transgender issues. But when there's any sort of question about the religious conscience of healthcare providers as it relates to abortion, he suddenly gets tense and starts to, to dig in and becomes very, very insistent on protecting the rights of religious conscience of healthcare providers. And so when Dobbs comes down, there's a testy meeting in the run-up to Dobbs where he's presented with various policy options that they could roll out the day that they know that Dobbs is going to drop. And he refuses to sign off on them. He starts litigating them because he's kind of convinced his staff is trying to drag him to a place that he's not comfortable and Dobbs comes down, he gives this speech, satisfies nobody. The left gets furious with him because they can sense his ambivalence on the issue and they can sense that he's not, um, he's not going all out in the way that they would like him to do. There's two really painful weeks in the late spring of 2022 where he is flat-footed. He's not pumping out executive orders. He's not giving rousing speeches. And it took him a while to see the genuine radicalism of Dobbs. And so there was a case of 
um, a young girl in Ohio who had to go to Indiana to get an abortion. And then she got caught up in the politics of it. And that was the thing that really moved him. It made it easy for him. He could see it in stark moral terms where a girl was being mistreated and bullied. And I think that was the frame that allowed him to come around. But his advisor could see the whole time that abortion was going to be the issue that offered political salvation Well, this for him. is what's so interesting about this. So, it's, But, I mean, it became the issue. I mean, depending on, you know, your analysis of, of, of the midterms, um, it, it was the most important thing in preventing uh, a, a Republican wave in 2022, or at least at the top of the list. Um, every election where it's been on the ballot, the Democrats... Um, have done well since since Dobbs, and they're they're obviously making it a cornerstone of the, the reelection. So he kind of he didn't see it initially, but I think part of part of what Joe Biden does is he falls back on his templates, and so he can see how the issue of abortion had been debated in the past, and yeah. he could think about third trimester abortions and all of his qualms about it and about yeah. religious. But he, he didn't really It's one of those culture war issues that doesn't work for the Democrats. It's going to lose me blue collar voters. Right. It's just kind of that view. But he also didn't appreciate the radicalism of the decision until right. the decision came out and until he saw how states would act in the face of the decision. And I think he was brought along not by the politics of it, maybe a little bit by the politics of it, but yeah. it was also by by the sheer radicalism of the Republican states. Yeah. Just to step back from some of the, the news in the book, just to talk about Biden as a person, what, what are those sort of qualities in private that you learned about that aren't commonly known? Yeah. So I think if you work for Joe Biden, there are both moments of incredible grace where he'll do things that few other politicians would do that when you're, you've got a relative who's passed away, he'll place a phone call to your parents or he'll, he'll call you personally. And there's, there is... That part of Joe Biden is real and genuine and an important part of who he is. But then he talks about how he also has an Irish temper and that there are certain moments, where, especially where he feels like he's being belittled by the person, by, by someone, that he'll, he'll get angry. So one example I had in the book was um, when he was in Europe for his first foreign trip. Uh, a protocol guy comes in from State Department and starts to talk to him about what he should say at a press conference. And Biden felt like he was being treated like a junior congressman. And he, <laughs> he calls this like poor anonymous staffer who's been brought in a horse's tail, <laughs> which is a classic Biden insult. Um, <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard that before. He's not a grudge holder. He's, he's, he's somebody, not. He's really not. I mean, I think maybe if you mentioned John Sasso, <laughs> the Dukakis operative who, who passed along uh, the tape of the Kinnick thing so many years ago, he would still be pissed off. But yeah. he doesn't. That's not the way that he operates. He's um, he'll get, he's capable of getting mad at somebody and then moving on. Let's talk about foreign policy. One thing that comes across in the book is he sees diplomacy and his relationships with world leaders. Um, very similar to how he sees, you know, relationships with legislators and, yep. and, and, and senators. I mean, it's sort of a cliche, but he really does believe in uh, these personal relationships with, with these leaders. You have very nuanced reporting about his relationship with Zelensky. Zelensky's turned out to be quite a pain in the ass from Biden's perspective. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tell us about that relationship and what you learned. Well, I remember the first time after the Ukraine war, started, I asked somebody about that relationship. And I think I naively s assumed that there was this um, uh, almost mentor-protege relationship to it. And they're like, no, that's not the way that it goes down. And that um, Zelensky had a very fractious relationship with Biden long before uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. That when it came to um, Nord Stream 2 was a big political issue the first year that, that Biden was in office. And um, in order to um, appease the Germans and repair the relationship with Germany, we needed to scale back some of the sanctions on Nord Stream 2, which 
obviously, understandably, pissed off the Ukrainians. And so Zelensky kind of made common cause with Ted Cruz in opposing the administration. And he would, the Ukrainians would tweet various things after meetings, kind of asserting that they were much closer to NATO membership than they were. And there were, there were just like all sorts of small missteps along the way from the Ukrainians' perspective, which really made Biden feel like they were... Um, they were pikers, that he was just like, he was not an experienced guy. And remember, Biden has been involved in Ukrainian politics much longer than Volodymyr Zelensky has been, that he was the guy that Obama dispatched to Kiev and who owned that portfolio in the administration. And Biden's a transatlanticist who loves going to the Munich Security Conference. This is his home turf and yeah. the place where he feels most self-confident. And then Zelensky came into the White House the first time that he came and told Biden, like he started lecturing Biden about NATO and there's like nothing you could do to make Biden angry or think less of you than telling him what the truth is about NATO, especially when it's very fanciful, which Zelensky's version of it was. And so and, and Zelensky has this very specific way of talking to Biden, which is very emotional. And all the things that work for Zelensky on the global stage where he's able to appeal to um like the spirit and soul of the publics of the West really is not comfortable with Biden. Biden feels like Biden, I think, as we're saying in all of these discussions, is a realist. Yeah. That he's somebody who grew up in the Cold War, who thinks about the problems of nuclear escalation, who thinks in terms of grand strategy. And so if you come in and you tell him, you, I need this weapon system, I need where my country will be destroyed if I don't have this weapon system, Biden's reaction to that is going to be very skeptical. He doesn't like the method. And also, I would ask every Biden advisor, what's the one question that he asks in meetings about Ukraine? And the answer was, if I do this, what are the chances that it increases the likelihood of nuclear war? And I think it's that, that guided every weapons system delivery decision. Right. Well, yeah. and it's incredible how much we've given the Ukrainians sit with that question looming at the front of his mind in all of these discussions, yeah. because we've given them a um, pretty formidable amount of arms and equipment. And we keep amping up the level of equipment that we give them because it's art, not science. There's a lot of new information, at least new to me, about Biden's relationship with uh, with Putin. Yeah. Tell us what you learned about that. The whole point of Biden's foreign policy is to pivot away from the Middle East, to pivot away from yes, Russia, to focus on China. Yeah. And so yeah. uh, he knew pretty instantly that Russia was going to be a potential source of meddling and that his best hope of dealing with Putin is to treat him like the big man on campus. And so Putin calls very, very early in the administration, and the instinct of Jake Sullivan and others in the national security team was to make the guy wait. And Biden's like, are you kidding me? When a nuclear a leader of a nuclear country calls you, you take the call. And so he called him back early, and they, had a, they, they were testing each other out. I think Putin is curiously um, uh, interested in Biden's age. Like he would, he would really remark on his fitness. So the first time huh. that they met in person in Geneva, he was he turned to Biden. He's like, I'm paraphrasing here, but it was something like, "Damn, you look pretty good." And then after the fact, he called Angela Merkel and he started to talk to her about how Biden looks so much better than he thought he would. Huh. Um, but so so Biden, when they they have their first meeting in Geneva in the first summer of the administration makes a very intentional decision not to do it on the sidelines of another conference. He wanted it to be in Geneva, a distinct event. It had some of the trappings of a Cold War meeting between yeah. a Soviet leader and, a, and an American leader. And that was all by design because he felt like it would be a gesture of respect and that maybe if he treated Putin with a measure of outward respect, even while he's sanctioning him and talking straight to him about these other things, then maybe he would feel less insecure. Obviously, that wasn't <laughs> that none didn't of, play out, but none of it worked. Yeah, nothing could have worked. I think. Did you pick up in any of your reporting any attempts at diplomacy as the war dragged on? that have been sort of out of sight to what we see day in and day out. You know, as someone who is an expert on Ukraine, has done, done a lot of reporting there, what's the end game in, in, in his mind and in yeah. Blinken and Sullivan's mind? So at the beginning of the, in the run-up to the war, there were various efforts to try to 
come up with some sort of diplomatic solution, most of which we knew were unlikely to succeed. Um, in the run, in the, the days leading up to the war, uh, Jake Sullivan tried to ha- to hash out a meeting with his uh, ca- counterpart in the Kremlin inner circle in Scandinavia. And it looked like it was going to happen. And then the Russians canceled it kind of at the last minute. And that was basically the end of diplomacy. And there was this long period where relationships went cold. And we tried to set up a military hotline in order to at least keep those military military conversations going in case to prevent any sort of uh, miscalculation. I think that Biden understands that there will be some sort of diplomatic end to the war. All along, we've tried to put the Ukrainians in the best position to come to the bargaining table to try to win back as much territory as they lost at the outset of the war. And then that's the baseline that would become the baseline for diplomacy. But there's debates within the administration. I think that Milley has tended to be um, more willing to move quickly to the diplomatic table. Um, And his argument for the first Ukrainian counteroffensive was that the offensive line opens up the space with the military and then diplomacy is the fullback that comes rushing through it. Well, I was going to ask you about this because, I mean, from my own reporting, it seems that this criticism may be dated. But the view from Milley and others at the Pentagon is um, that there's not enough discussion from the diplomats, the folks at the State Department about that end game, about a diplomatic solution. And sometimes that the rhetoric can be very overheated. Yeah. Um, that Ukraine will, you know, uh, take back every piece of territory and that the the sort of strident language ab- uh, ab- about about the war gets in the way of signaling um, interest in, in, in dip- diplomacy. So there's been a little bit of an unusual yeah. Pentagon Inversion. state. Yeah. Um, is that, it's a, you know, the way that Biden talks about it, the way that Sullivan, the way that Lincoln talk about this is as a righteous cause. Um, and they talk about it with a kind of fervor that other administrations have talked about uh, other wars. You know, I, I don't want to compare I don't, it to I actually don't. I think you, you don't they're, think they're, they're captured by that. There, there's distinctions within that group, too. I think yeah. that Blinken is like the biggest true believer in the Ukrainian cause. I think that Sullivan and Biden are more realist about um, about Ukraine. I think that Biden especially. Yeah. Does, you know, he, one of the. One of the most powerful moments I think in my book is he tells Zelensky, you know, you would like nothing more than to drag us into World War Three, and like he's he's there to resist that in his view, and so I don't think that um, he's a total maximalist when it comes to Ukraine. Yeah, um, it's I think we want Ukraine. We we also understand that um, Russia's word isn't really worth a whole lot. That if that we were to negotiate a settlement with Ukraine that had any sort of meaning with Russia that had any sort of meaning to Ukraine, um, it'd be, they'd ha- we'd have to offer Ukraine all these security guarantees, and that there was probably little chance that Russia would stay true to its word. I mean, we have enough empirical evidence to show that Putin is pretty genuine in his belief that Ukraine is part of a lost Russian empire. Do you think that the backlash from the right against Ukraine could hasten the uh, push in this administration to get to the negotiating table? Do you you think that they're worried about um, declining support for sending so much money there? I think they're acutely aware of that. And that's one of the elements that goes into their calculus. And that's, I think, part of you see all this anxiety come up in the way that the West, the, the U.S. government talks about the Ukrainian counteroffensive. We want them to move quicker. We want them to we want them to to take these risks. We want them to be on the field. And I think that comes from the sense like we can't pass by this opportunity that we don't know if there's going to be a third counteroffensive in the cards because we may not be able to get them the arms because of the Republicans in Congress. Let's talk a little bit about the future. You were talking before about this kind of crazy decision, frankly, for Joe Biden to run for re-election. And we sort of get why. It's sort of, you know, the way I would put it is, you know, 
he wants to put the final nail in the in the coffin of Trumpism. Yeah. You know? And well, first of all, do you think I was doing some interviews in the White House recently, and one of my takeaways was they won't say this, but their entire campaign messaging is built around running against Trump. Now, maybe that's just the reality that they're looking at the primary and he's likely to be the nominee. Um, but I'm not sure they have a, of a have thought through a non-Trump opponent very carefully. Um, there are a number of Democrats out there like Terry McAuliffe and Howard Dean, a few others, who have said publicly, we want Trump to be the nominee. We want to run against him. Do you think that's the way Biden sees this? Can I just, one frustration I have just covering this is yeah. that when they talk about Bidenomics, yeah. they talk about it um, solely in terms of unemployment rate and inflation and the vibes. But there's like, there's substance there. You, you've instituted industrial policy for the first time in many years. You have the makings of a populist economics when it comes to uh, antitrust or trade policy or any number of areas. They could go toe to toe with Trump on populism in whatever, in their liberal internationalist, more cosmopolitan sort of way. The way they sort of have on China now. And they've refused to do that. Like they, they have actually, I think, a really compelling economics that they could sell. Yeah. And, and, and it meets the moment, but they won't do it. And Wait, why they've been that? hesitant on, they have never liked um, spiking the football. They prematurely spiked the football on COVID with the July 4th thing. And then they kind of retreated from that. Like they never, they never celebrated the end of the pandemic. Um, so with, they, with and, and with economic, economic news, they don't want they, It's the exact same thing, that they are convinced that they can't convince the public that economics are going in the right direction when people feel so bad about inflation. And they could be right. But on the other hand, they're basically throwing away one of their best messages. Um, All right, fair. And, and, and the other thing about Trump that's really interesting is that Joe Biden is somebody who doesn't especially enjoy adversarial politics. He doesn't like having foils or enemies. I mean, there, there's, there are isolated examples of this, but kind of his preference is to be um, to be more positive in, in in his politics. And there are moments where he's you know been willing to meet the moment to be very aggressive. But isn't that the glue that holds the Democrats together right now? Yeah, totally. And, and I mean, if you talk to them about this election. There's not a, any mystery. You know, well, look, we, we ran this in 20. We ran this in 22. Um, now we have the Dobbs component to it. Like, they know how to run the yeah. 2024 election against Trump. Right? Yeah. They know the ingredients. That's a pretty, it's a, it's, they know the ingredients. It's not a bad playbook, too, right? I mean, it is, there's evidence that it's gotten stronger with time. Absolutely. But they sort of, I mean, they're in this weird position of arguing that Trump is the most destructive destructive force in American politics. But, oh, by the way, we kind of need him on the ballot to get to get reelected because who the hell knows what a race against yeah. Ron DeSantis uh, uh, would be. I mean, whatever they think about it is essentially irrelevant because- They can't control it. They can't control it. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I think it, it, sometimes I think it puts them in the position of rooting for, for the boogeyman of Trump to stick around for one more election. You know, maybe on Where, some whereas this is probably very academic and, and beside the point. But you know, if you if you look at any of the, the literature about the rise of author authoritarian threats in other countries, especially parliamentary systems, the way that they're defeated and contained is a kind of left, center, right coalition, and not um, uh, not doing anything to. Uh, to raise them in elections or give them the possibility of of uh, of, of victory in an I, election. I, I now it might just least, be a difference of our yeah. you know of, of our system and there being no promise of putting that to coalition together. Uh, but I mean, Biden comes closest to assembling that coalition of any plausible Democratic candidate, if, because of the 
former Republicans who will vote, who hate Trump and will vote for Biden. Yeah, because he's not an aggressive culture warrior, because the version of his agenda that ended up passing is kind of the most politically capacious version of it. There's not any economic redistribution that he's engaged in as president, um, that he's managed to articulate a, a form of um, populist economics that corporations can mostly get behind. I mean, there, there's a lot of... Yeah broadness to his his church. And I don't know if you were to run an open democratic primary, whether you would find somebody who could um, who could appeal to so many different segments of the electorate. What do you think? Um, what do you think a second Biden term would be like? Let's assume and this is a terrible assumption because this isn't going to happen. But let's assume it's a rerun of Biden, Trump, and it's somewhat predictable. The the kind of it, it'll look a lot like twenty and and, and twenty two and, and very close election. Uh, Biden prevails. Maybe there's some uh, uh, some drama uh, at the end over over who actually won. But let's not play out some of the yeah. you know the craziest uh, scenarios that that you know something worse than January sixth. He's back in office. So I kind of feel like a second Biden term. There's there's certain inevitabilities. It'd be a foreign policy presidency, and we're assuming he's still alive. And we're yes, yes. Um, uh, I think foreign policy would inevitably be a big part of what he does. I feel like he's he feels like he's close on his Asia strategy, and so I think he would try to 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 do that. I think he would be in search of other grand bargains and deals that he could pull off over over the globe. So something like the Saudi-Israel deal. I mean, maybe it doesn't make sense as a strategic priority, but I don't think we have a great deal of visibility into his thinking on that. But that's the type of thing that I think he he would that that's his jam. That's what he he would groove on. In terms of what the Democratic legislative agenda is with that thin of a majority given the failures of Build Back Better. So is Ma- Manchin is not in the Senate then in that scenario. I think no. I think he would have to be because you're relying on a Manchin's reelection in West Virginia to keep that majority. That's yeah. why Manchin continues. This is such a that's why Manchin continues to have. I, I'm not sure. Well, it's I, not a counterfactual. It's just <laughs> yeah prediction. Um, <laughs> I think right now, if you look at the betting markets, the the kind of default is Biden gets reelected with a Republican Senate. With the Republican Senate, but it's on the it's on a knife edge, just the way just like it was in uh, in twenty twenty. Yeah, you um, know. I, so one thing I think that if we're just going to scout for a couple areas where there's maybe the possibility, of- do you think he thinks he can he can actually govern for four more years after a grueling campaign and into his mid eighties? People are notoriously terrible judges of their own capacities. <laughs> And when you're at that age, you know, sometimes what happens is, you know, Putin's assessment of his health aside, <laughs> um, you start to, the decline starts quickly. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's also, I mean, it's it's a totally reasonable thing to ask. And it's also a very hard thing to predict for a given individual. Yeah. You are not one of these people who believes that I still find Democrats, you know, here and there that are convinced that. Biden through through some kind of uh, very complicated scenarios won't be the nominee. Now that we're into September, I think that's becoming increasingly less of a thing you hear. But through the summer, especially when I was on the West Coast, you would hear all of these donors and other allegedly plugged in Democrats make make that case. One of the things about him is that he's We've talked about this already. The difference between the public Biden and the private Biden is like is negligible. Yeah. That yeah. like so much of what he says in public is what he repeats in private. So yeah. you know, he'll come up to you at the end of a meeting and and say, you know, like my mother told me, don't your man told Joey, don't judge me against the Almighty, <laughs> judge me against the alternative. Yeah. And you're like, wait, you didn't you realize you've said that like about 20 times today on the record and like you're repeating it to me, like it's a novel thing. Um, so I tend to kind of think of him as being actually, um, achingly sincere about all of this stuff that if he says he's going to do it, yeah, he's going to do it. And he leaves himself a little bit of wiggle room. But I think sometimes when he talks about fate intervening, 
um, which is, uh, you know, the, I think a religious thing. And it's him spiritual. talking about it's him talking about dying. I don't think it's totally him talking about, and not consciously. I think maybe subconsciously. But he mean, but he leaves that that I, I'm not little sure. bit of of, 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 yeah. of doubt because he is someone who who believes it. Yeah, in, he says in, I'm a great fate. believer in fate, and yeah. that's something that he kind of always throws in his his, his like, de facto default caveat. Well, the book is fantastic. The Biden story, um, especially now that we've been talking about it for a, for a couple of hours, is truly one of the most fascinating political stories in um, in American history. This this guy who um, was just always counted out. Um, no, none of us thought he would become president, and none of us thought he would have as successful, at least legislatively, a, a presidency as as he's had. And you've done a remarkable job, sort of reinterpreting uh, him. And I hope everyone reads this. Thank you. It's great work. Good talking. Thank you. I so enjoyed it. And that's our show. Our producer is Kara Tabor. Our senior producer is Alex Keeney. I'm Ryan Lizza, host and executive producer of Deep Dive. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Please subscribe to Playbook Deep Dive wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.